We're in James chapter 4. On the screen, it was incorrect. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it's James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. She did read the right verses. James is, is talking here uh, throughout his letter to a group of people that were struggling. Now, there is actually a theme of suffering in the Bible, and I think one thing we should note from the beginning is that uh, part of being a human being and be, being affected by uh, the brokenness that is, exists in our society means that we're going to, at different levels, at different periods of our lives, struggle. We're going to suffer. And this is not a woe is me, woe is us kind of a talk, but it's important to recognize that all of us have difficulties. And James is dealing here with a group of people that experience some difficulties, some of which was a result of their faith in Jesus Christ, their belief that God created all things that sin entered the world through uh, Adam and Eve's disobedience, and every generation has been broken since. The only hope of the world is to be restored to God through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. So this is what they believed deeply. They had faith in Jesus as the forgiveness of their sins. And so they became outcasts in some ways, and, and people began to look at them and think that they were crazy and, and uh, began to mock them and to quit doing business with them. And so they, began to, they were suffering, but they believed that there was a hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They believed it deeply, so they wanted to live differently. They wanted to love one another. Instead of hating their enemy, they were told and wanted to love their enemy. They wanted to love God and give themselves away to God and give themselves away to other people, which is at the very essence of Christianity, giving yourself away, which is exactly what God did to us through Jesus, um, made a sacrifice for us. And so James is dealing with some of their difficulties, telling them count it all joy when you experience difficulties of different kinds, because it's actually good for you. Uh, rather than counting it as a deficit, you count it as profit in, in your personal column, your personal account. And then James begins dealing with some, some real practical things in chapter 2. And what we see is that James is more concerned about the authenticity of their faith than he is the difficulty they're experiencing. He quickly deals with what's going on in their life, but then he goes to the heart of the matter, which is their, uh, their faith and the genuineness of their faith in Jesus Christ. And what's of particular interest to James is how they use their words, the way in which their words affect their relationships with other people, and specifically the way in which their words affect other people in the church, in their little local body. And so it seems to be becoming more and more and more focused on the way in which these people are using their words and how it affects the church or the group of people that are being called and gathered by God and will carry the message of the gospel or the good news that through Jesus Christ there's forgiveness to the rest of the world. And this is the church. The church is not a building. It's a group of people called together to represent God and the gospel to the world. And so, um, so, so James is dealing with this. And, and authenticity matters, right? Whether or not something is real matters. Now, um, how many of you like Mexican food? Okay, so good. Most of you do. Uh, whether or not you eat it, we all should 
probably like it, um, especially in Texas. And Jeannie and I, we lived in Houston for, um, well, I lived in Houston when I met Jeannie, and she grew up in Houston her whole life, and so we learned to love uh, some good Tex-Mex. We believe this is the be- we have the best food in the whole world is in Houston, Texas, um, which is why we have a lot of robust, healthy people. And, um, and so whenever we first got married, God took us to Iowa. Anybody ever been to Iowa? It's a state. That's right. Amy's been there. She played the softball there for Iowa State, right? Yeah. And, um, and so it's a state in America. It's up in the Midwest. People from Texas don't really care about other states. But, uh, but you should know there are others out there. And, um, and we were in Iowa. And I'll never forget when we first got there, we, we were longing for a taste of home, some authentic Mexican food. Surely there are some Hispanic people that migrated all the way up there. And we go to a place called We've told this is there's two Mexican places in town, and one of them is called Carlos O'Kelly's, <laughs> which sounds Irish. So we go there. This is honest. Amy, do you recognize this name? Yeah, okay, you've been there. And uh, so we go there, and Jeannie and I, and Jeannie's like just enough Hispanic that she tans real nicely in the summer, but uh, we, we can, she was more Mexican than most people there, and, uh, I, and she was offended on behalf of her people, and I was offended as someone who loves authentic Mexican food. Well, that, that one didn't work, Carlos O'Kelly's, so we thought, where else are we going to go? So we went to another place called Taco John's. Not Taco Juan, it called it Taco John. And they had this burrito with tater tots in it. Right? This is the truth. And so, and so we were really disturbed. Why were we so disturbed? Because it wasn't authentic, right? Authenticity matters. And so we didn't, we didn't even want to be around that food. We, like, re- rebelled. People would say, you want to go eat some Mexican? Like, there's no Mexican in this city. And I'm like, oh, okay, dude, seriously. And um, we cared about the authenticity of it. Now, that's a goofy illustration, but I think it helps us to think about how important it is that our faith is authentic. It's genuine and it's real. We live in a culture that accepts, accepts it when a person claims faith in Jesus Christ, but is not actually regenerate or a believer. And, the, and it's culturally acceptable to say, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in God and Jesus and the whole cross thing. But their lives look nothing like the life that is portrayed as being Christian in the New Testament. And so James, and it's, this is not a new problem, James is dealing with this very thing because uh, their, their lives were apparently not matching up with their claim of faith. And the issue here for James seems to go further than just the use of their words. He begins dealing here in chapter 4 with their hearts. Let's look here in chapter 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now notice the words like quarrel and fight. And apparently there are problems within this church, this new fledgling church. There are problems. We see these phrases like you desire and you covet. And it indicates that there was a group of people within the church that were, that were wanting their own way. They were, were, they were speaking up in such a way, some of them apparently claiming to be speaking the truth and trying to assume the role of teacher, but they were speaking up in such, such a way that it revealed that they were looking out for themselves and their own advantage. The very essence of the church is not me, but we, right? So this problem 
was creating division in this group of people, in this church. And, and you might think, well, the issue here is that they're, they're, not, uh, they're not really connecting to God and they're not trying to pray about it. Well, no, he actually says, you are asking, uh, but you do not receive because you ask wrongly. So they actually are praying. These people causing problems with their words, maybe trying to act spiritual. They're praying, but he's saying, no, God's not answering your prayers because you're asking wrongly. You're being selfish. It's a, it's a problem. There, there appears to be, in this newerish church, um, a problem of some, some cracks in the foundation. James is going to deal with this early. Now, I grew up in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And in Sand Springs, Oklahoma, there's one thing that every house has in common, and that is... I pause, like trying to create some drama. It's really not all that exciting. There's cracks in the walls because the sand, the, the, the dirt is very sandy, hence the name Sand Springs. And it's very sandy. And so I can remember as a kid looking up, still to this day my parents live there, and there are cracks in the wall. And I, you know, it happens here certainly too. But there, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's every house has it in a major kind of a way. It's common language that everybody's getting foundation work done. And the problem is that there, were, there, was, there was an unsettling in the foundation. And so the foundation would begin to crack and then it would create problems throughout the house. And no matter what you did, you try to get some plaster and cover it up. Well, just six months later, you'd see that crack again. This is what James is addressing. He's saying there is a problem in your foundation. There are people within your group that are being divisive in their speech, and it must be dealt with. It's it's subtle here what they're doing. And and what we've already addressed is that there's an issue with their words. But it's interesting here, James, although he's on the topic of how they're going to use their words, he scales the conversation up a bit to move beyond just the sin of of improperly using our speech, but to this category of mistakes in general. He's talking to a group of professing Christians about this category called sin. And he brings up this issue of repentance, turning away from our sin. The result um, for them was this divisive speech and action, but the root problem is in their hearts. They're not submitting to Jesus in the way that they should be. In fact, James is about to say they're running around on God. They're, they're being whores. Running as adulterous people. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, this is a really, really strong statement, and it looks like he's moving the conversation beyond just the use of their words to, in general, if you are a friend with the world and profess Jesus, you are an enemy of God. I mean, if you're a friend of the world and don't profess Jesus, you're an enemy of God. But as believers, we must be conscious of this. Like, whoa, we can still have an inclination at times to become friendly with the things of the world. And it matters. It, it really, really does matter. Uh, and he uses this idea of the, the adulterous people. And, and the, you know, the church is called the bride of Christ. And so it's like the bride of Christ is running around and giving themselves to somebody else. What 
James is saying here is that, is that you all, and he's talking in the plural, you all are, affected, are being affected by the sins of a few. And your sins, those of you that are sinning, which all of us do and mess up and make mistakes still, certainly I do, will affect other people. This is, this is something to think about. Um, he uses this imagery of adulterous people, which makes us think that the church is called the bride of Christ. But there's another way that the church has talked about the body of Christ. And uh, it's a simple illustration, but if you have an illness in one part of your body and you just try to, you just try to look, okay, my foot uh, is broken, but uh, it's just my foot, so I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to try to keep going about my business. You can't, right? Because the way in which one body is injured affects the rest of the body. So if one part of your body is sick, you better deal with it or it could cause problems for the rest of your body. This is what he's saying, that there's an issue here where he's, he's trying to teach them about repentance as a part of faith. Now, let me, let me, let me be very clear here on something. It is a good thing, a really good thing to understand that in Christ, a healthy part of being in Christ is, 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 a, is a contrite heart or a, a heart that's regularly repentant. Regularly saying, God, I cannot be perfect. You know why? Because here's what it does. It just reminds us why we need Jesus in the first place. When I became a Christian years ago, I really do think, I had in my mind for years that it worked like this. Yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sin, and I believe that story. There's mystery to it, but I believed it enough to be baptized before a group of people, and, uh, and then I went to church. And then I think there was a part of me that just expected to, to be perfect. And then when I wasn't perfect, I kind of on my own had to clean myself up. I mean, yes, I'm not going to go to hell when I die, but I'm kind of working on my own to clean myself up to be what I think I ought to be in Christ. But what we understand if we apply the gospel of the Bible or the good news of the Bible is this, that even after entering into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we're going to mess up. And when we mess up, what it does is it screams, this is why Jesus came. This is why he died. Applying the gospel to a repentant because spirit or theology of repentance means that we're going to mess up and we ought to understand that repentance is a part of our faith. Some of you are here today and you feel distant from God. You feel disconnected from God. I mean, yes, you believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross, but, but let, me, let me help you understand something. Um, whenever you mess up, you, you, Christ continues to forgive. I mean, you don't have to be perfect. You really don't. You don't have to prove anything to God. But when we do mess up, we, we must have regular opportunities where we go before God and just say, God, I mess up. I, I just, I mean, just from my own life recently, I've just been really convicted about my pride. I mean, I, it's, I mean, I, just my pride of worrying about what people think about me as a pastor. It's really stupid. I, wasn't, I mean, it's just like, really? And uh, God, God revealed it to me the other day. And it was kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay, God, I'm prideful. But you know, you've got you to be prideful or else people will run you over. You know, even the, as I'm getting ready for this message, which has been a battle mentally for me, going to this idea of repentance. And, and I get ready, and God's like, Russell, I'm going to crush your pride. You may have, 
if I have to get all these people to leave your church to do it, I'm going to crush, you know, crush your pride. And I hope you don't, but um, uh, and that's just for me, but I don't know what it is for you. What, what area do you struggle in? Where are you off? For some of you, it's lust. I mean, this is pandemic in our society, even in the church, where you, you just keep giving in to looking at stuff you shouldn't look at, or you keep, keep giving your heart to other things other than your spouse or to better to Jesus. This isn't about beating you up. Look, look here, look here in verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us? It's a little bit of a tricky verse. Here's a translation that might help you. Here's what he says. God jealously longs for the Spirit he made to live in us. He's jealous for his presence to be real and alive in us. And when we harbor sin or allow sin to accumulate in our lives without repenting of it, that it, it suffocates God's work in our hearts. It does. And you can hide it. I'm telling you, you can hide it. You can hide your sin even from Christian brothers and sisters. I mean, you really can. But what it will ruin in you is the Spirit of God which is jealous for your attention and for your, for your heart. And James gives these words which are an encouragement to us all and certainly maybe those that were re- reading this letter for the very first time heard this from James they begin to feel the weight of their own sin be it their divisive speech or whatever they were struggling with. And he says these words which are, are like Water in the desert. But he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. They may have been driven to despair as they were seeing their sin, feeling the weight of their own sin, realizing that the Spirit of God was really quieted in their life because of sin. But what James says here, he quotes of Proverbs, and it's also quoted in 1 Peter 5, 5, is that God will give grace to the humble or the repentant. If you're willing to turn to God, and you say, I've done it a million times. If you're willing to turn to God, believing that Jesus Christ died for those sins, that God is ready to pour grace out on you. You don't have to be perfect, and you won't be. See, see the problem with sin and in our culture, especially as um, people have a more of a pluralistic mindset, which is kind of like everybody gets to have their own views, and there's no one thing that is the rule, that is, that is truth. When you begin talking about sin and that there is a certain way to live, it, it feels to some people as, as hateful or bigoted, or unloving. But what I'm saying to you is this. The most loving, one of the most loving parts of Christian belief is that God tells us, here is how you should live. And when you begin living like that, you experience the greatest amount of joy and happiness and security and satisfaction. And as you begin pursuing this type of life in Jesus Christ and and, and begin to live the gospel every single day, when you mess up, you say, oh God, I'm sorry, I messed up, I'm not perfect, please forgive me, I want to move forward. That's repentance. 
And it shouldn't be seen as something as like, oh man, you're really beating us up today, but more as something that we go, okay, I can't be perfect, and I'm reminded that, that Jesus was perfect, and I must cling to Jesus. I said something I shouldn't have said, or I'm saying things I shouldn't have said, or I'm looking at something I shouldn't have looked at, or I'm harboring bitterness or hatred in my heart towards another person, and, and, and I don't want to live like that because it suffocates the Spirit within you. He says God gives grace to the humble. What does humility look like? Look there in verse 7. And we're getting ready to see here in 7, 8, 9, and 10 this, this just blast of what's called imperatives, imperative verbs where or like commands. So you say, what do I do? I, I want to I be right before God. I want to get cleaned up, so to speak, in Christ in a godly kind of a way. Here's what he says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. This is what repentance looks like. It's not pretty. For some, it will require brokenness to the point of tears. You cannot manage away your sin. But what you can do is say, God, I submit myself to you. I want to draw near to you. I resist the devil. So I know the devil, the Bible says the devil is like a roaring lion wanting to destroy you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. In other words, genuinely feel remorse for your sin. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And He will exalt you. He will, draw, he will, as you're drawing near to Him and saying, God, forgive me, He'll pull you close. As you're submitting yourself to Him, He will put you on your knees. It's a beautiful, mysterious exchange and relationship. This is what James is calling them to. As he thinks about this church and the future of this church. And You know, here, here's really why it matters. I mean, the church is to be to be grown, and, and, and the mission of God is, is happening through one institution, and that is the church, the body of believers. And when there's sin in the church and the lives of the people, it affects all those people, but it not only affects all those people, but it affects the mission of God. It affects the way in which the church is used by God in the world. And so our sin, be it small or big, really matters, not only for our own lives, but for those around us. And he has a final thought here in verse 11 through 12. Kind of brings it back to the way in which they're speaking to one another. He says, do not speak evil against one another. This, this may be something worth thinking about. I, I don't, we're new, and so I don't know that we have a lot of um, backbiting or slander. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of unity and encouragement in this group, which is really beautiful. But it will, we'll be tempted to be there someday, I'm sure. But the one who speaks against a brother, it says, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. The law being love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the law they're breaking. They're being unloving to their neighbor, to the people that are near them, by slandering or by trying to hurt the reputation of somebody. 
What I want us to think about here as we begin concluding thoughts uh, is repentance a part of your faith? Is regularly repenting a part of your faith? And, and, and you might be tempted when I say that to go, okay, I'm going to look inside and try to figure all this stuff out on the inside of me. And I, that's not the kind of... Re- what I mean is repentance is like, yes, I've messed up. And rather than look inside, because what you'll find in there, you won't find enough to deal with your sin. Instead, you look up and you say, Jesus, I need you. I need to draw near to you. I'm not perfect. Ruin and crush me to the place where I need to be so that I can be used by you. So that the Spirit that dwells within me through my faith in Jesus Christ can come alive in me. This is the repentance that I'm talking about.